The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome back to the Rebel Podcast. As always, you got Pootie and P Nate up in Garage Mahal with Dave on the dials. We're all here, ready to drop it like it's hot. How you doing, Nate? <laughs> ready to drop it like it's hot. I like how you incorporated both Dave on the dials, which makes us laugh, and then the drop it like it's hot was very unexpected. Well, well played, sir. Well played. I, I do what I can. I do what I can. How you doing? I'm doing well. Pootie likes to keep me on my toes during the intro. If he can get me to laugh and make us like start over again, he wins. So, uh, well played, Pootie. Um, we are the Rebel Podcast, and uh, you're likely listening to us, hopefully on a Wednesday. It's Wednesday when this is uh, is dropping, uh, like it's hot, apparently, according to Booty. <laughs> Uh, but we are part of the Reformed Rebel Network. Uh, on this network, uh, you'll find the Awakening Reformation Podcast and uh, the Great Exchange Podcast. Um, if you have not yet, go over to their Facebook page and follow them. Uh, subscribe to their uh, feed. Uh, they'll be sh- shortly. They will be migrating over to the Rebel uh, feed, and uh, we're going to have them on and introduce you to them. But uh, in the meantime, just get acquainted with uh, Matt and Nick and uh, the Great Exchange Podcast. And then all the other ones, the uh, uh, Fathers of Faith for Covenant Kids and uh, Apprentice Theologians will be starting back up um, maybe a little bit later than we anticipated, just because the Van Brimmers are in the middle of a move to Canada. Um, But uh, you can look for all those and you can find all that stuff at rebelalliancemedia.com or uh, Reformed Rebel Network on Facebook. You can find us on Patreon and all that kind of stuff. Speaking of Patreon, actually... Um, the merch, uh, so we just... If, <laughs> the long-awaited the merch. The long-awaited merchandise. So the the new logo is out, and hopefully you like it. Uh, our, our buddy Jesse Leet uh, did a great job on the logo. I think it communicates our our mission and our, our passion for post-millennial theology. And uh, so anyway, that's out there, and you can now get t-shirts and hats and all that kind of stuff with it. And you can, yeah, you can get a, a Weaker Vessel, hashtag the Weaker Vessel uh, apron, and uh, so those are uh, actually that that's the hottest commodity right now that we there are so many people who want those. I've, I've heard that a few times this week. And then I've also had the joke, make, are you going to wear it, Chris? Be like, shut up, you shut up, you. <laughs> it's always nice to hear how you interact with the <laughs> listeners. <laughs> Uh, so that's us. We are the Rebel Podcast on the Reformed Rebel Network. Uh, we are going to start a new series today, actually. But before we get there, uh, I just I thought we should probably talk, uh, get some Rebel news out of the way. And uh, the Rebel news uh, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on was the recent uh, 2020 Conservative Party leadership election. So for those of you who are in the States and ignorant to all things Canadian politics, uh, this is the Conservative Party. Uh, they would be similar to the Americans Republic part, uh, Republican Party, uh, but this is the uh, the Canadian Conservatives. 
and uh, the the national leadership, the the federal leadership race uh, was underway to replace uh, Andrew Scheer, who just lost uh, in the last election to Justin Trudeau, who was reelected. And uh, and so now uh, Justin Trudeau. You're, you're looking at me like you want to yeah just, just for our american listeners this would be like your presidential primaries for your like republican party or you democratic party, party so there are four four names on the conservative party ballot that uh that made it this far uh there's aaron o'toole who ended up winning uh peter mckay uh leslin lewis and Derek sloan did you follow any of this booty i did yeah i did i was thoughts give me thoughts <laughs> about like the outcome well, yeah, just about sure. the race, about the outcome. Give me your thoughts. Well, let me let me let me first say that I'm I'm I, I actually like this process. So this is this is a process that I actually think should be federally implemented in Canada. And what I mean by that is the process of eliminating, almost like picking a pope. You eliminate the lowest <laughs> the lowest candidate. No, we're not picking a pope. We're not picking a pope. Not. We are not picking a pope. But if we had to pick a pope, I'd pick Piper. Um, <laughs> Pooty picks a Piper Pope. <laughs> I don't know. I could do it. Um, but I like this process where it's like we finally get who actually the majority of people would prefer to be the leader in this situation. And because the conservatives all vote and then the lowest of each of their candidates gets eliminated and those votes have to get revoted until somebody wins the, the party's right. um, process. And I actually think this is what we should be doing federally. Um, we should have a vote and the lowest person, the lowest parties get eliminated and then everybody revotes. And even if the elector- electoral process takes a month, isn't it better than to have the person in charge that the majority of people would have preferred right. rather than a situation what we have in Canada where we have like 506 parties and we get <laughs> two very prime predominantly voted for parties. But even if you total up them, it's less, it's like, I, th- I believe I'm correct in saying it's, it's only around 50% of people even vote for those two parties. Yeah. And, and quite honestly, so uh, Andrew Scheer of the Conservative Party won the popular vote last election, but lost again, just because of how the ridings are split up and the total number of seats and first past the post and all of the problems with the way we elect people. Um, but th- this process, like you said, was good. Uh, Peter McKay, who I think was by far the worst candidate, by far the most liberal of the conservative leaders, um, looked like he was going to win because he won uh, the most ballots in the first round. But then Derek Sloan was eliminated and then Lewis was eliminated. And uh, when it came down to Aaron O'Toole and Peter McKay, Aaron O'Toole actually won, which... So I don't know what you th- what you think. I th- I think Aaron O'Toole beating McKay is is good, but Aaron O'Toole I think was the second worst candidate. Like I, I De- Derek Sloan I thought had the best platform. He's by far the the most conservative. Um, I, I think the 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 one who I think it, unquestionably I would say that faith is real. Um, Leslie Lewis I I actually thought she should have won. I I I think she's the one just in our cultural climate. She's the one who actually could have won an election. Um, but they're both out <laughs> there, and now uh, Aaron O'Toole beat Peter McKay. What do you think? I I'm I'm very upset about the outcome of it. Even though I like the process, I'm I'm. I'm actually appalled that McKay and O'Toole are two of the best candidates in the first place for this yeah, totally. for this process, considering they're running for the conservative party. And neither of them, I don't think either of them would be con- even consider themselves conservative in any way, shape, or form. Liberal yeah. to the to the ninth. Yeah. Um, so I, I'll I'll read you something. So there was an article put up on LifeSite News after the election, and uh, 
So uh, I'll just read a little bit. Aaron O'Toole, uh, the new leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, who touted his Catholic faith during the leadership campaign, doubled down on his pro-abortion and pro-LGBT position, saying he won the party leadership as a pro-choice Conservative MP. Quote, I am a MP with a clear track record for standing up for human rights, whether it's women, whether it's the LGBT community. I won the leadership of the Conservative Party as a pro-choice Conservative MP, one with a strong mandate. So that's, with his own words, he considered himself a pro-choice, pro-LGBT Conservative. So I would ask, I would ask at what point, like, where does he identify as a conservative? Like, is he, is he just physically conservative? Is that the only place he would say yeah, he's conservative? In, in fact, it's quite interesting because uh, I can't remember the exact quote, and I'm not going to b- bother looking it up right now, but Peter McKay had a pretty derogatory statement um, in the campaign about social conservatives, where he basically just said, like, they're, they're the reason our country is going down because everybody votes for the liberals. And basically, his point was... Uh, Canada votes liberal because the conservatives are too socially conservative. If the conservative, if the conservatives would just get with the times and be socially liberal but fiscally conservative, we would actually win elections in our country and be in a better state. So that's Peter McCabe essentially said that throughout the campaign, and I think that's actually what hurt him. I think he, like neither of these guys are social conservatives who it came down to at the end, but I think at the very end, the social conservatives who who had a vote after the two actual social conservatives were eliminated voted against McKay for that statement. Yeah, they picked the lesser of the two evils right. at that point. Um, I I just have a like I have an analogy that I think that's something I've been thinking about recently about in terms of like elections and, and things like that that I that I think is just, it's just so mind boggling that the people who run these parties don't think of. And so the analogy is sports. So you have a sports team that wins a championship and what's the immediate thing that everybody does is they try to become like that team, not in terms of, they just try to achieve the same thing, right. but they try they to play m- running gun. Everybody plays running gun. If exactly. they play a defensive game. Yeah. They, they, they try to like mirror the, exactly. the team that won. Exactly. And, but the problem with that is that you can never do it as good as the team who is doing it first. So like in the, in the, like you use the NFL, for example, everybody tries to be, to do things the Patriot way, but they're not the Patriots. So therefore they fall short. Well, they don't have Tom Brady. Yeah. And and they don't (laughs) cheat. So there's the other thing, but that's the other point. Um, but it's one of those things where it's like, it doesn't make any sense to play copycat. What you should do is do the opposite and, and, Take those that idea and be, just do your own thing, and you'll get those people who vote. Because if if we look at any statistic, most of the time it's usually a forty forty split in terms of in terms of politics, and then the twenty percent that does sway back and forth. The mushy middle. The mushy middle, and we can look at states like Florida, Ohio, Michigan that do f- oftentimes flip back and forth. That's generally where the elections are decided in that middle ground. So why should I then, as a, like in terms of Canada, why would I want to be almost liberal, but not quite liberal to try to win an election. You're just basically playing into the liberal's hands to say, well, you're better at being liberal than I am. So you will always win because you're the, you're the liberal party. Right. And it's like, and I remember reading, hearing a documentary, a documentation, documentation, a documentary one time about how the Rolling Stones came to exist. And it was the idea that there were so many people who were Beatles fans and, but there was this huge population who disliked the Beatles. And so the Rolling Stones came into existence based on the idea that there was like, well, the people who don't like the Beatles will like us because we're the anti Beatles. And 
Were the Beatles bigger than the Rolling Stones? Yes, but the Rolling Stones had years where they were bigger than the Beatles. Right. And it's one of those things where if you look at an election and like in terms of the Canadian Conservative Party, stop trying to be something you're not. Just be conservative. And when the Conservatives' time is to, to win the election, people will vote for the Conservatives because yeah. you're different than the people that are unhappy with power already. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I, so even, even to take this, so a lot of our um, listeners might not know uh, Canadian politics. So they might not know these names. So rather than talking about the names, like, let, let's talk about that principle a little bit because I think there's two problems embedded here and you've identified one of them. And the first one is if everything is trending in one direction that we need to go with the flow, right? Like that's the, that's the sort of lie if we're going to spot the lie in politics. So because a liberal wins an election um, and because of Trudeau's sort of popularity, um, we want to, we want to elect our own Trudeau, right? Our own, our own champion for LGBT or whatever, like, and that seems to be, but, but isn't that just more concerned with winning than it is with like the values of conservatism, right? Like that's so, so that's kind of the first problem. And then I think the second problem is like, and I find myself with this, like I get swept up in some of this political stuff and you almost have to like stop and remind yourself that like our hope is not in, it's not like, you know what I mean? Like, it's not like the church is suddenly going to thrive and the millennium is going to be ushered in if Derek Sloan (laughs) wins the leadership. Right. And so I think, you know, there's, there's those two things. I think conservatives or political junkies in general need to remind themselves of the principle that Chris just said, and that is don't go with the flow, like care about the values of conservatism more than about winning an election. And, and I, I think in a lot of ways, like Trump is the embodiment of this as well, right? Like he's certainly not a true blue conservative. He's, you know, he's been, he's brash, you know, the moral character has not been there. And, you know, we kind of dug ourselves into this hole when we, when we, I'm, we're not even American, but like when, when a guy like Donald Trump was voted for, because he's, he's that um, brash who doesn't embody all of the values of conservatism either, right? And then you, you, what you end up getting is this mascot that you are, are sort of on the hook to defend because he's your guy, even though there's very little defensible about him. You know what I mean? Yeah, for 100%. I think, it, I think you're bang on. Like, I think part of the reason Trump won the election is because he stayed like he did promise big change, which interestingly, interesting is something that Trudeau promised as well in his first election, yeah. that he would change the way we voted and change the electoral system. Yeah, and didn't he, work. It. And he decided to ditch that the moment <laughs> he actually won the election. And which is, I think, is something interesting to point out. But like, I think you're, I think you're bang on. I think this is something that Christians particularly need to be reminded of: is the fact that like Donald Trump isn't the Christian candidate. The Republican Party isn't the Christian party. It's just the one that is more closely aligned to some of the values that we we stand. But like, we ultimately follow God's word alone. And regardless of who is in power they're not the king that we bow to, right? Like, And, and I think I want to, I want to, you know, I hate the word nuance these days. I, <laughs> I honestly, I hate it, but I am going to nuance that just a little bit. And what I, what I want to say is I think there's a clear choice for Christians. Okay. So when we say that Donald Trump isn't the Christian candidate, the Republicans are not the Christian party. Similarly in Canada, you know, the conservatives are not the Christian party. 
I what I, what we mean by that is that we aren't um, aligned. We aren't. We haven't pledged allegiance to a particular party, and therefore everything they do is above reproach. I think there's a clear choice for Christians. Like I don't think a Christian oh, in good conscience can vote for a party that supports the murder of babies, right? But I mean, here you go. Um, I've heard a lot of people talk about how pro-life Donald Trump has been, and he has been been fairly pro-choice or pro-life. But there's a really interesting um, article by our friend Jonathan Van Maren over on the bridgehead.ca. It's called, How Important is the Republican Party to the Success of the Pro-Life Movement? And, uh, and he actually goes on and he, he shows the record. And, and I mean, Trump isn't quite as, doesn't have as splendid a record on the pro-life issue as we think. I mean, yes, he, he went to the pro-life rally and, and he's done some good things and we should celebrate the good things that he's done. But I think we're just we're too quick to get into the ring politically and and prop up sort of our guy, forgetting that like throughout the scriptures, whether it's Psalm two, Psalm seventy two, Malachi one, always always calls for the kings and the leaders of the earth to bow the knee to Christ. And I think sometimes when we get a Republican, when we get a conservative like on the throne, so to speak, we forget to call them to the uh, allegiance of Christ as well. Amen. So anyway, um, ah, man, politics. <laughs> well, you get way fired up about this. So. Yeah, sometimes yeah. I do. But we, should, we should also have a separate, like, for Patreon uh, um, <laughs> show where it's <laughs> Nate rants about politics. Grinds gears about politics. Let's grind Nate's gears. Right. What's the grinding the gears from? That's from something. I don't, I don't remember. I'm sure somebody will remind us I think somewhere. it's a meme. I think it's like, I think I've seen it in a meme. Probably. Grinding, what grinds my... It doesn't matter. Um, um, let's get on to our topic for today. So it. we're starting a new series, and the series is called Don't Go Back to Normal. And so let's just intro the series first, and then we'll, then we'll kind of talk about where we want to start today. So the, the idea here is that everybody keeps talking about back to normal, back to normal, back to normal. And actually, we give our, our friends over at the Awakening Reformation podcast a shout because they they said very early on, they, they kind of cautioned against this language of going back to normal. And, uh, and so we kind of picked up that idea. We've been talking about it quite a bit throughout quarantine, and we're going to kind of take it and run with it in a little bit of a mini series here. And when we say don't go back to normal, what we mean is with everything, we keep talking about when life gets back to normal, right? When, when we don't have to put a mask on to go into the grocery store, when, you know, uh, the church can meet higher than the capacity regulations of the government, when, you know, um, Grant and Eric are planning on coming to Canada in, in a few weeks. And, uh, you know, when, uh, when border patrol or border shutdown isn't like hindering that process, we talk about all these, like when things get back to normal, um, school is getting, is amping back up. Kids are going to be going back to school in a couple weeks here in Canada. And, uh, actually they just delayed it. Did you see that? Well, yeah, they, they delete, delayed it a week. There's lots of reasons. I don't think I don't think they're going back, but that's beside the point. Oh, really? Interesting. We, we'll talk about it off that off air. All right, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. But um, my the point is is like everybody keeps talking about when things get back to normal, and even in, in my neighborhood, we have we have um, neighbors who are taking everything much more seriously than we are. We haven't seen them nearly as much as we would have. We normally have a block party in the summers, and and uh, in the summer, and and people weren't comfortable with that. And they keep saying, oh, hopefully next year things are back to normal. And so we keep hearing this phrase, back to normal, back to normal. And we want to just kind of press the pause button and say, maybe not everything should go back to normal. What do we mean by that, Pootie? Yeah, it's, it's actually like the first time I heard it was from Doug Wilson. And he was just basically, um, the, the preface was their, their, 
there are things that we were doing that was normal that need to be abolished. So what we mean by this is not like you don't have to wear a mask anymore. Like those, those minor normal, those things go back to normal. Exactly. But Um, what we're, what we're meaning is that if, if we, and I think we've said it on this podcast prior to the pandemic, like that, that these, this uh, virus and the the fact that we have, I would say in both Canada and the United States, we have wicked rulers um, and all the, those things. The Bible uses pestilence and, and famines and um, disease oftentimes is judgment. Um, and then when the Bible tells us very clearly when there's wicked rulers, it's because God has raised up w- wicked rulers to judge a nation. Yep. Um, so therefore, we are saying that the nation, we've said the nations are being judged with, with these things. And we are both big proponents of the fact that it, we can't say that the nation is being judged because judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Right. Um, so we're saying we want to find out what are those things that we're doing that we would have considered normal practice that has brought judgment upon the house of the Lord. Um, and so what, I, what we mean by don't go back to normal is just simply identifying those things in our lives that were opposed and, and anti-gospel. Um, and it can be something simple as like, you know, you know, I don't, I off the top of my head, I can't think of any like homeschooling or something like that, but like, right. um, we can think of those things that we are doing and we took for granted previously to the pandemic that we can now look and say, well, these are, th- these are things that went, once we've had a chance to step back, we look at it and we can say, these are not what uh, God has affirmed in our church and our lives and our world. So. Right. So one of the, the verses that kind of got us thinking along this lines, and we talked about this quite a bit at Crossroads when, when things shut down. And like you said, we, there's no way we can look at the, the complete shutdown of the, the worship services of the church uh, in North America for a time. Um, I think most churches, uh, I would certainly say all faithful churches are back up and meeting. Um, but I think the, uh, um, the shutdown of the church nationwide can't be looked at as anything other than judgment, right? Like, um, you know, when, when God shut everything down and there was all kinds of stuff going on, uh, being put out online, you know, when, when, when God shuts down sports and entertainment and causes stock market crashes and all this stuff, like he's, he's tearing down all of our idols. And, and in the, in the midst of doing all that, we cannot ignore the fact that the church got shut down in that too. And, uh, and so one of the verses that we talked about a lot as we called our church to repentance, um, is second uh, Chronicles chapter seven and in verse 13. So just in, in context here, this is right after Solomon dedicates the temple. So Solomon, uh, finishes the temple He's dedicating it. And then there's this, this covenant that's being made between him and God about the, uh, the temple and the people who would worship God there. And, uh, and he says uh, in verse 13 of Second uh, Chronicles chapter 7, this is God speaking, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. So there's three things that are listed there. There's, um, you know, when essentially it's it's drought or famine, right? When I shut up the heavens and there's no rain or uh, locust, right? Uh, Devouring the land or sending pestilence. And so uh, God is, is equating those things as his judgment and that it, it demands something of his people. 
And the response when that happens that God is demanding from his people is to humble themselves, pray, seek his face, and turn from their wicked ways. So when we advocate or when we we commend you not to go back to normal, what we are saying is that our response when God sends pestilence as judgment, um, if we want him to heal our land, then what, what we need to focus on there is turning from our wicked ways. What are the wicked ways that we were involved in that caused this judgment in the first place? And what is it that we need to turn away from? So that as this pestilence moves to the side, when um, churches are able to gather in full capacity once again, when families are allowed to host neighborhood barbecues and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and you know, I, we know all our listeners are on different areas or in, in, on, on a spectrum there. Some of them are already doing those things in defiance of the government. Our, our church is meeting right now, but they, we, we have complied with some of the restrictions. But wherever you are in terms of these restrictions, as, you, as life begins to return to a state of normalcy, what we're saying is look at areas that have been changed and don't go back to the things that might have caused this judgment in the first place. So we have some ideas on, on some of those things that, that those might be. But one other place, and I won't read it, but I would encourage you, you, just, you actually preached on uh, the, the book of Obadiah, uh, I want to say Darn right, year, I did. <laughs> I, I want to say it was about a year ago, wasn't it? It was around this time last year or fall. It, fall? No, it was uh, January thirtieth. You usually take the or sorry, December thirtieth. You usually take the week between oh, Christmas. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there you go. So there you go. So uh, Pudi preached on Obadiah, and in Obadiah, it talks about God's judgment um, and how God's judgment causes panic and confusion in the nations, and I think that's quite interesting because you know. Look, look around us, like the misinformation surrounding this pandemic, the, the, the panic, the fear, the fear that's even gripped the church. Um, it is very, very clear that this is, this is a form of God's judgment. So what we're, what we're going to go through is various spheres and say what, what maybe needs to change in those spheres in the lives of, of, of God's people. And, and because, as you said, judgment begins in the house of the Lord, we're going to start with the church. Okay, that's so our, fair. our church services were shut down, and uh, and as you know, we we begin to meet again, or continue to meet again, or as capacity begins to grow once again, what are some of the things that we do not want to return to normal on? Go. <laughs> well, why don't you just get us started? Like, well, what, I, what are some of the things that we've talked about, or you've been thinking about? I, I think I think the big like I think we need to just preface that there are there are big ones, and so one of the big ones that I think is very prevalent, and I would say more churches than it's not prevalent, is just the attitude towards like LGBTQ um, or TY or whatever it is. Just in terms of the softening of. Um, the church's response to to those pr- those principles, um, I think we need to start there because that's almost a that's almost like a a universal one right. that seems to be prevalent in in a lot of churches, even even in churches that otherwise are faithful. Yeah, that they soften or they just don't take a stand. Um, and, and in terms of that, and I want to make sure you're hearing what I'm saying, not what I'm not saying. And like I'm not saying in terms of our attitude of love and and you know respect and stuff like that for people in general. I'm talking about like the leadership softening that it's not wrong. Right. Um, that not we would, preaching against the sin. Exactly. Don't preach against the sin, allowing them to be members, allowing them to be, um, you know, 
pastors, elders, leaders, leaders yeah. in, in the in the church. And I would say um, there's that there's that principle of you you always will like most people will always fall to the lowest common denominator um, in a in a circumstance. So when you put um, you know red dye in water. What eventually happens is the red dye is all through the water, even though it's mostly still predominantly water. And they, the idea of that is like if if we allow them to to serve or whatever, people will then become soft towards them doing all these other things. And it's just the idea of watering down God's word and His principle, which would then lead us to water down in other areas. I and mean, then I think if that makes does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So so if I can jump in there, I think I I agree with you, and I think that. Um, basically the, the big premise here when we say don't go back to normal is uh, don't go back to the soft way that we were dealing with, um, I, I think, what the Bible says. Okay, so LGBT, I think, happens to be the, the predominant issue of our day where we are, at least in Canada, seeing more and more pastors soften on. But I mean, I, I think it's very interesting that, you know, God judges the nation, shuts down many of our churches, and for many churches, even some, I would say, otherwise faithful pastors. I mean, we have, we have, I mean, we never shied away from naming names, so let's name some names. <laughs> um, like, whether it's Jonathan Lehman, whether it was Matt Chandler, whether it was David Platt, whether it was, um, like, some of these guys who we have been helped by in many, much of their ministry, and many of them, churches not meeting, and yet they were advocating to go to Black Lives Matter rallies. Like, this is insanity. And so you wonder, how is it that we got there? Well, we got there because um, Black Lives Matter became yet another cultural phenomenon that pastors who had slowly gotten soft or been apologizing for God's word. I think about this with Matt Chandler all the time because for a long, long time, I just want to start by saying I've been majorly blessed in my life by the ministry of Matt Chandler. Like he was one of the reasons I was reformed early on. Like he was one of my favorite. He was a young, good communicating pastor who I thought was very strong on the doctrines of grace and complementarianism. And slowly... And I don't know if this is just a symptom of how big your church gets and how many people you become responsible for and how how public your ministry is. But just slowly, he just started softening on all of these various issues. And and um, so when you get to um, Black Lives Matter, he has been soft on so many issues, not necessarily saying the wrong things, but not saying the right things or not saying it far enough. Like I remember... Um, it was some sort of major news outlet that was talking about the growth of Matt Chandler's church, and they interviewed him, and they asked him about homosexuality. And his response was, we don't believe or teach that it is optimal for human flourishing. Like, what? Like, it's a very simple answer. The Bible says it's a sin. Don't do it. God can heal from any sins, forgive any sins, and transform you. Right? Like it's a very simple answer, but when you nuance it that softly, it shows where you're coming down on things. And so suddenly, and so now you get to some of the, the race stuff and Black Lives Matter just becomes yet another notch in the belt of the, um, the, the kind of soft or woke evangelical crowd. And it's, it's sad because now like we, we I think we, we, Guys like Doug Wilson and A.D. Robles and some of those guys have been seeing chinks in the armor for a while, but like for a long time, these were allies, right? Like Matt Chandler, Mark Dever, 
Uh, these guys were allies of, uh, I would say, of us, right? Guys that we learned from. And now all of a sudden, you know, here they are and they've lost a lot of their credibility because they've been soft on some of these issues. Yeah, I think you're bang on. I actually think you hit on, while you were talking, I think you hit on one of the things that I don't think we can go back to normal on. Um, and it's not one that I had thought of previously, so I want to get your thoughts on this as um, the idea of big churches. Um, and what I mean by that is like, is there ever a category of a time where a th like 3,000, 30,000 church is needed? Wouldn't it, like, if we're, if... If you play out post-millennial theology, we're, we're spreading like like the, the seed spreads. Yeah, the concentration um, exactly. spreads. So a guy like Chandler, he might simply just be um, softening because he has 30,000 people. I don't know his size. I think it's yeah. somewhere like yeah, around there. Yeah, the village um, is huge. Where it's like no, no one person other than Christ is able to manage that. Right. Because um, he's the only perfect leader. We There is no other, there is no other pastor in the history of the world who is perfect in every way and could lead like a, like a perfect leader. So you, you almost need to, um, there's that, uh, it's called the uh, Peter principle where people eventually get promoted to a level of, of, to the level of their incompetence. So they get promoted right. past all the levels that they right. could do until they're no longer competent at what they can do. And I think, I think, Chandler is an example of that. I think he's a great pastor. I, I think he's a great preacher. I think he's very good on certain things. But simply just nobody's equipped to do what he's supposed to be doing, like that he's supposed to be doing. So I think church planning is one of those things where don't go back to normal. Don't go back to a and be OK going back to a church of even 600 people and think we can just continue to meet as 600 people. Because that's, in my opinion, that's three churches within, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, what's a better thing? Is if there's three churches making disciples, preaching the word, getting into their communities and Well, and like and creating, creating leadership opportunities, growing leaders from within, like, you know, growing up homegrown missionaries, all that kind of stuff. I, I totally agree with you. And I think that, you know, I think that's, it's funny too, because Matt Chandler, is, I, I believe, is or was the president of the Acts 29 church planting ministry. But it's like, if you have a church of 20,000 people and you're the head of a, a church planting organization, how do you justify keeping a church of 20,000 people, right? Like, and I, I just think... Yeah, sorry. In fairness, let me just jump in. I, th I do believe he's broken up his yeah, campus. Yeah, so, so we shouldn't. We should. We like, should move on. Who were who we got the spotlight <laughs> just uh, the shined on? But yeah, but that is the idea. And there are there are all of these churches that are just these massive mega churches. That the, the minute you become that big and there are that many people who rely on you, I've heard, I've talked to pastors of mega churches who talk about the responsibility that they have to the families of their, of their employees, right? So you have like 20 some odd pastors on staff, 30 some odd pastors on staff, and you're responsible for them and all of their families so that if, if the budget starts getting, you know, if, if, if people stop giving or whatever, because you preach a hard sermon series and you have to fire two pastors, that's two entire families. Like you, like people think that, oh, I'm above that. I wouldn't think that way. I would, I would stick to the truth. Guess what? Like history is not the friend of pastors who got that big. Right? Like over and over again, history is littered with these pastors who grew these massive churches and buckled under the pressure, either succumbed to sin, succumbed to, um, well, various kinds of sin, all kinds of various kinds of sin, but whether it's sinning with the budget, sinning with the leadership style, sinning with the um, secretary, like, you know what I mean? They're, like they're just a plethora of sins that you open yourself up to when um, you 
as you said, when you when you hold something too tightly. Um, so absolutely, I think that like I so I would say maybe structurally, church should look at its growth strategies and its its planting strategies and just how big it wants to get. I would say it also like look internally, like what's the motivation of your, of your church? Is it to get to, to a thousand people or is it to be faithful? And it's one of those things where I think we, I think, I think we're all guilty of this at some point. We're just, we, we look at the numbers and we look at the amount of people who are coming and the amount of like budget and all that stuff. And we look at it and be like, we've made it. Look right. at how, look at how good we're, look at how healthy we are. We almost become like country clubs in terms of like, membership rosters where it's like, Oh, we stole this couple from down the street. We, we, you know what I mean? Like, um, that, that guy's a doctor and he came to our church. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not, right. and I'm, I'm saying yeah. this generally, yeah. right. Where we look at like us getting to like 250, 500, a thousand as milestones where it's like, no, that's nowhere in scripture did. I don't even correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think Paul ever mentions like a church where he's like, yeah, we made it cause we hit 500. You know what I mean? It's like, it's one of those things where it's like the, the, the mentality was always outward in the early church where I think we've, we in North America's particularly our churches have yeah. focused very much inwardly. And we even see this, you can see this play out when it's like somebody leaves your church and how quickly there's no longer a friendship with that person because they're not one of you anymore. Right. And it's like, they went out from us and therefore they're not one of us. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Even if they just moved to a different church, you know, yeah. like, um, cause it's one of those things where we think very internally. And I think that's something we need to, I think we need to eradicate like the self-centered, the way that we think of our churches. Right. I think that, I think that part of that stems from, um, I guess the competitive nature of sinful people, right? So, you know, we're going to talk about maybe in a couple episodes down the road, um, you know, not don't go back to normal in your neighborhood. We're going to talk about what it looks like in your neighborhood. But like, we all know the the sort of like temptation to like keep up with the Joneses, right? And like, you know, keep, your, you know, whether it's the front lawn or, you know, there's that competition within the, um, the neighborhood. But um, like that plays out in every aspect. I have t- a couple young kids and you can see them like, and sometimes that competitive spirit is used for good in terms of like Judah learning to ride his bike super early. Cause he was just like, I'm going to f- keep up with my big sister. But, um, but that competitive thing can turn it to sin so quickly. And especially when we're talking about the church, like I can't think of many kind of pastor summits, conferences where you go to, where you start talking about your church, where somebody doesn't ask the question like, well, like I, I kind of make the, the phallic joke where it's always just like, oh, how big is yours, right? It's just like pastoral measuring contest because that's ultimately people just start looking at the pecking order. Like, you know, how like the size of your church t- determines your worth and therefore determines your value amongst these, these peers of pastors. And I think that's true for like people as well. Like, I, I think what church you go to and how well that church is doing and, and all those kinds of things. I think there should be pride in your church. Absolutely. But this competitive nature of like, you know, not seeing the church down the street. If they are a faithful, Bible-believing, gospel-centered church, um, then, uh, you know, not competing with them for like, um, you know, jurisdiction within the kingdom, right? This is what the, this is what the apostles were trying to do when they're arguing on the road about who is the greatest. And Jesus is just like, you guys don't get it yet. Right. So, um, so yeah, I definitely think that there's, there's, you know, our mentalities, our competition, our, our church growth structures, uh, all that. But I want to come back to this idea of faithfulness because I think, 
um, I, I think the, the root cause of what makes churches go soft on some of the cultural issues, I do think it's tied a lot to, to budget and size and, and pressure and all that kind of stuff. And I think what it, what it mm. ultimately comes down to is approval of man over the approval of God, right? Like, um, I remember there was a quote one time about John, about John Knox, where at his funeral, it was said of him that he was a man who, um, who never feared to upset man because of his fear of upsetting God. And, and so like he was characterized by this, he's going to do whatever it takes to make sure he does not offend God. And if that means offending other people, then so be it. And I think um, as Christians, we struggle a lot with just the, the adulation and the praise of man. And I think that that includes many, many pastors and many pastors' wives who encourage them not to be disliked by others and by the community, whether it's motivated by church growth or whether it's motivated by just being popular or whatever the case might be. Yeah, I think I think you're spot on. I think sometimes, I think I think sometimes the the desire to soften isn't there. Sorry, that they they don't soften because they have a desire to soften. They soften because they don't have they lack the desire to have the fight. Right, um, and it's like and I remember through the pandemic, hopefully I'm okay to share this. I remember you saying to me one day when we were chatting, because we didn't really social distance at all. Um, shocking, uh, whatever. But like, I remember you saying like, this is the hardest time you've ever been a pastor and not because church was shut down. You were doing a lot of different things, but it was because of the pressure to capitulate yeah. was at its highest form ever. And it was like, it was difficult because it's like, and you, and I remember you saying like, I can see why people would do it now. Yeah. Whereas I, before I couldn't, you didn't thankfully. Um, but it was one of those things where you could, you, you could understand the temptation just because sometimes I think we weary of the fight and like, and particularly like, I think you hit a bang on the head. Sometimes it's the, it's the loved ones that are like, like almost helping the cause of capitulations. Cause it's like, they're the ones that suffer the yeah. most when you are in Facebook wars and like, you know, if people are upset with you, it reflect, it goes back to them too. And I think so sometimes totally. I think, um, like that's a very, a thing just to be aware of. And I think that like, if we, if we say we can't go back to normal, our leadership, one of the things we can't go back to normal is letting our pastors be lonely, letting our elders mm. be solo, not praying for our elders. When like, I hope our listeners do this stuff already, but like, I remember saying, and I remember thinking like, and praying for our elders. And I'm, and I remember thinking like, when was the first, when was the last time I actually just took time on a weekly basis just to pray for, not for my pastor. I, I'm, I'm, thankfully that was grilled in pretty early, but like our, just our other leaders in our church, our worship leaders, our elders, our um, small group leaders, all the people who at different varying levels have that temptation to cave, to not offend. And it's like, I think we need to, as a church, the church in general, need to be better at just building each other up, strengthening, encouraging, and willing, like we should almost welcome when you offend us. You know right. what I mean? Like, because that means there was something that was needing to be corrected in us. You yeah. know what I mean? Like as long as our pastors pre is offending us using the word of God, if that right. makes sense. That's a, that's a phrase we, we kind of use a lot at crossroads is um, if anybody's going to be offended, we want the word to do the offending, right? Like that's the point is, um, uh, but I appreciate you bringing that up, and yeah, totally okay to to say it. Um, but uh, I, I do remember that during the pandemic, is um, you know the there was a lot going on, and there was a lot of like 
differing opinions and trying to like cultivate unity within the church, but not at the expense of truth. And, um, and honestly, just finding myself, I would say, uh, finding some people who are usually allies within the church suddenly acting as though they're my enemies. And it made me think of uh, Paul in the book of Galatians uh, when he says, you know, have I now become your enemy for telling you the truth? And, uh, and I just remember like it was, it was very, very stressful. And I remember that conversation that we had where I said to you, like, I, I just, I get it why people do it now because you know, you get worn out from the fight. And, and, and so I, I, I guess what I want to say is I, I want to say thank you and yes and amen to everything you said in terms of praying for church leaders. I also think sometimes um, we forget how much more uh, our leaders have on the line than we do, right? Like, so you know, if if you as a Christian are a, a lay person who, I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to minimize any of the fighting or any of the courage that you've had to display, um, but like when you get into a Facebook fight, when you disagree with somebody in your congregation, there is so much less on the line for you, and I think sometimes the 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 pressure to capitulate hits leaders harder because they have so much more to lose. Now I say that not. Um, not trying to soften how we ought to um, condemn capitulation. But I say that to motivate people to pray. And I also say it to think about like, so even for example, you know, I have less on the line than a guy like John MacArthur. Like John MacArthur right now ought to be on the top of most of our prayer lists. I mean, not only is he risking everything, but he's risking everything in a very public setting with a whole lot of people's lives on the line. And and like that takes guts. And one of the reasons we've been so um, supportive of what he's doing is because there are a lot of other pastors, and we named a bunch of them at the beginning of this podcast, who capitulated, who softened, who made an easier choice because they didn't want to put it all on the line. And, uh, and so I, I think, you know, if we're saying, let's not go back to normal, there's a few things. Leaders don't go back to spineless leadership. You know, congregants don't go back to not praying for your pastors. And churches in general don't go back to being soft on hard issues because courage is like your muscles. We work out to gain strength for the day that we need them. If we don't use courage, it's not going to be there when we're the day we're saving up for it right? You train yourself to be courageous, much like you train your muscles to be strong. And, uh, and so don't, uh, don't capitulate on small things waiting for the big battle, because uh, when the big battle comes, you might find yourself like a lot of the pastors we named early in this podcast. Um, and all you've known is cowardice. So um, I feel like we're just going to keep, we didn't get to anything on our list. No, so. let's, let's, let's make this two parts. Okay. So let's wrap well, it here. Yeah, yeah. All um, right. We'll talk about uh, what else not to go back to normal on with the church uh, in just a, a, a short week. Um, anything you want to say in closing, Pudi? No, I, I thought ending it on the don't go back to cowardice is perfect. All right. <laughs> don't go back. All right. See you next week. Cheers.